भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येमाक्षजत्रा स्थिरंगुष्टुवागुम सस्तनु व्यशेम देवित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति नूषा विश्वेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्षोरिष्टने स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओ शातिशाशाति Before I start, uh, let me just uh, mention that uh, next week we will not have the class. Next Wednesday. Um, so next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, the three classes: the Gospel class, and the uh, Vedanta Study Circle class, and the Gita class. That's the next Friday. This Friday we'll have the Gita class, but the next week, so the class they, they are cancelled. The classes on sixth, seventh, and Ninth, sixth, seventh, and ninth are cancelled. There is the World Parliament of Religions in Toronto, so I'm going to attend that. So, but then again, the classes are there after that. We will also mention it on our website. Just keep that in mind. All right. We saw. a whole list of different philosophies different theories belief systems which gorupada gives i think i i uh, counted 35 systems probably uh, many systems i counted 35 systems yes i counted 35 systems and gorupada rejects all of them on one ground why they are all some object or the other and remember the logic with which we agorapada has started this chapter anything that is an object to consciousness must be an appearance because of being an object like a dream whatever is experienced in the dream is an appearance is not real so anything that is by virtue of being presented to consciousness cannot be an independent reality apart from consciousness so whatever your theory no matter whatever it could be a scientific theory you saw there were materialists there were hedonists there were non-believers there were believers uh, there uh, there were religious theories materialistic theories and today scientific theories anything that projects an independently existing reality object apart from the subject apart from consciousness itself is is an appearance is what is called mithya remember when you say false and appearance mithya falsity appearance does not mean that they do not that they are not experienced they are experienced after all when you say a dream is false does it mean that a dream is not seen a dream is seen of course a dream is seen but what do we say though i saw it it's not uh, not real it seemed real when i wake up i realize oh it was a dream it was all in my mind so because 
Advaita holds something to be false and appearance does not mean that it does not ex- is not experienced. It is experienced. So the world is experienced. Even by a non-dualist, an enlightened person, the world will be experienced. Even after enlightenment. If you have eyes, you will see form. If you have ears, you will hear sound. So when um, Narendra Nath is asking questions to Sri Ramakrishna, I'll come to you. When Narendra Nath is asking questions to Sri Ramakrishna, that, uh, sir, have you seen God? Did Sri Ramakrishna say, I can't hear you because I'm enlightened, because everything is Brahman to me. Of course I can hear you. The world is experienced. But what is the difference between the experience of an enlightened person and others? We think, I am this subject experiencing an objective world apart from me. The enlightened person says, I experience the world in the one consciousness, which I am. The subject is the one consciousness in which the entire universe is experienced. We are also not denying that things will have their transactional use. Even in dreams, if you are thirsty and you drink water, what happens? Does it not work? Or is it labeled, dream water won't satisfy your thirst? No, it works. So at every level, at the dream level, the objects seen at the dream level, they will work. At the dream level. It's only that they are falsified when you come out of the dream. In the same way, even after enlightenment, everything will keep on working here. So falsity, appearance, another term for that is a relative truth, a lower truth. Swami Vivekananda said from lower truth to higher truth. From a relative truth to the absolute truth. What All of these are relative truths. You can call science a relative truth. Advaita will re- fully agree. Yes, science is a relative truth. It works. Remember, when um, Advaita says that the world is an appearance, Advaita is not giving an alternative explanation. You see, it's not trying to compete with science or give a separate uh, explanation. When science... All the theories of science, all the uh, propositions or axioms of mathematics or theorems will continue to hold at their level even after you are enlightened. So everything works at that level. So relative truth, that is there. But what Gaurapada wants to say, there is a deeper aspect to all of this. That is Brahman (coughs) or Turiya. From that perspective, all of these are appearances. From the dreamer's perspective, the dream world seems to be true. What Vedanta is saying, similarly from the waker's perspective, from your perspective, this also seems to be equally true. But from the Turiya perspective, this is also an appearance. Just as the dream world is an appearance to you, the waker, similarly your world, the world which we, exp- uh, which we live in here, will seem to be an appearance from the Turiya perspective, from your enlightenment. All right. So there was a question there. Yes. So what about beyond? I hope I can explain myself properly. What about beyond the dream? Because our souls travel at night. So what happens when you have an out-of-body experience or when your soul travels at night? Because that is pure consciousness. Is it? it? What do you think? Have you exp- if, if you experience it, you know what Gaurapada will say? If you experienced it, it's an object of your experience. It's an appearance. No, no, it's important. It's an appearance. The Gaurapada will ask, the teacher will ask, an appearance to whom? That is what Gaurapada is interested in. 
Gaurapada is not interested in anything in the objective un- uh, uh, in the realm of objective appearance. Right? In fact, what you are talking about, he actually covered it in one place. He, he talks about all the varieties of theories which you today you might call a range of new age ideas. He said, fine, those are there. But they are all objects in my awareness. What is that one unchanging awareness? That's what we are talking about. Okay, yes. Can you elaborate a little more on the lower truth, higher truth idea? It's just the analogy of the, the waking state versus the dream state. It's hard to relate to because when we are awake, we know the dream is not true. Yes, we know it is not when true. You, when you have the self-knowledge that you are pure consciousness, mm. then you know what you see around you is all mythia. It's not true. It's not true. Right? It's not true with so respect to lower truth. With respect to that, yes. But, but if, so the difference is, one difference one must appreciate, when you snap out of a dream, the dream appearance is also gone. You are in another appearance now, the waking world. But you know now that was an, that did not actually happen. You don't take it seriously anymore. But there are, the, 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 uh, after enlightenment, the world appearance doesn't disappear. It still continues for the enlightened person. But the enlightened person equal... Yes. You realize that is your true nature, that is what you are, but the rest now is, is unreal, it's all mythia. And the rest, or for that enlightened person, the rest is nothing other than that pure consciousness. If It's not that there are two things, one pure consciousness and one something else, something, something weird, separate. But so, uh, the transactional existence is now lived from that perspective. That's why, in fact, you will see that commonality between you people you consider enlightened across ages and civilizations and you know the utter selflessness, the utter fearlessness, the unshakable serenity. Where does all of that come from? It comes from this, this touching something. I'm saying this in a very broad way, not just from a non-dualistic perspective. Experiencing, touching, finding something absolutely non-dying, absolutely immutable, unchanging, a place of permanent rest and peace. Finding that and knowing that to be absolutely true. A devotee would say, I found God. Meera, when she sings, what, what was that? Sukh gaya bhavasagar, fikar nahi mohe taranan ki. Mohe lagi lagan prabhu charanan ki. Now, what, look, it's, it's a very devotional song. What does it mean? My heart is given to the feet of the Lord, to, to my Lord, to Krishna. Uh, but what is the result? She says, the entire, the, the universe, Bhavasaga, this, this samsara, the, this uh, universe of transmigrated experience, this, she compares it to an ocean. That's a classic way of referring to an ocean. She says, the ocean has dried up. There's no ocean to speak of anymore. Hence, I have no concern with the waves. Look at the ex- extraordinary way she puts it. Sukh gaya bhavasagar, fikar nahi mohe taranandki. I, I have no fear of crossing over the samsara anymore, ocean of samsara. I have no fear of the waves of the samsara anymore because the ocean has dried up. How has the ocean dried up? You have found some god called Krishna. So how is that concerned with this? This itself becomes illusory, an appearance, compared to what she has found. Now she can live happily. 
but one more thing before I come to you. Let me give you another example of these two truths, higher and lower, the absolute truth and the lower truth. A movie or say a Harry Potter book, there are two truths there. What I'm trying to say is this idea of two truths is not, not too extraordinary, not too far-fetched. We use it all the time. There is a fictional world of Harry Potter and there is a world in which you are just holding a book with printing on it. There is really no Harry Potter, no um, school of magic, no Dumbledore who's a teacher. It's all part. If you say, is Harry Potter a student of the Hogwarts school of magic? What is your answer? You will say, depends. Depends on what? Depends on if you're asking in the story, yes. If you're asking in this world, waking world of mine, there's no school of magic, unfortunately, and there's no Harry Potter. It's just a book with printing on it. Do you see? We are using, we are using two truths. Exactly like that. Come. Come, come, come. Oh, okay. Thank you. Oh, so do you see that we are using two truths here? And this is very interesting. You find it in Advaita Vedanta, this idea of two truths. And you find it in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, or in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, the philosophy of Nagarjuna. Um, and uh, where he talks about Buddha taught two truths Paramartha Sat, Samritti Sat. Samritti means transactional reality, which is this, and the absolute truth, which is Paramartha. But what it is in the Buddha statement is not so, ob so obviously mentioned that there is an absolute reality, it's just that something is there beyond this. And I found, I was in the public library yesterday, for yesterday, where I was uh, an ancient Buddhist text written in India about 1400 years ago, almost at the same time as this text. This uh, Buddhist writer is called Bhaviveka. Bhaviveka. Um, Bhaviveka, he wrote a book, uh, Madhyamaka Karika Hridaya, and another book called a commentary on that called Tarkajwala, the blaze of <laughs> argumentation, Tarkajwala. Uh, in that he says, there is a section about Vedanta, where he refutes Vedanta. But the refutation of Vedanta there is not very satisfactory because the presentation of Vedanta itself is a little crude, um, based on some, some texts. Um, he says that uh, um, Yat Vedanteshu Suktam, Yat Vedanteshu Suktam, Tat Sarvam Buddha Bhashitam. Whatever has been well said in the Vedanta, has all, all of it has already been said by the Buddha. Okay, he's accusing us of appropriating the Buddha. But I have no problem. I have no problem. As long as he recognizes it's the same, same teaching. Anyway, it's something I discovered. Um, uh, 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 just yesterday, a day for yesterday. All right. Yes. Right now? Oh, okay, but I'll come to you. He, he raised his. He asked first. Yeah. Yeah. Human senses are are limited. Uh, yes. Bandwidth limited. We can only see certain frequencies, like on the electromagnetic frequencies. Yes. We can only hear certain frequencies. But that allows the possibility of having objects that are beyond our experience. True. So if there are objects that cannot be experienced, objects that are experienced are not real, mm. 
But if objects are unexperienced, are they real? Yes. Real in what sense? If it's an object, it's not real. Whether experienced or unexperienced. But if you're asking, can unexperienced objects exist? Obviously, they exist. In, does Vedanta allow for it? Yes. Gaurapada would not be faced by, by this question. He would simply say, in your dreams, when you are experiencing a world of dreams, what did it feel like? I am seeing some people here, but surely there are billions of people in the world whom I am not seeing. When you wake up, so in your dreams there are two categories of things, things seen and things unseen. And you are firmly convinced, nobody thinks in a dream, only this person is there. The rest of it, of course, is not there because it's a dream. I'm not seeing it. But when you wake up, what will happen is, whatever was seen and whatever was unseen, both become characters in, created in your mind. If there is something which is not an object to our senses, which is there, the entire range of ultraviolet frequencies is there, the entire range of infrared uh, frequencies is there, you'd have to be a rattlesnake to see the infrared, but all of that is there. Sounds, very high-pitched, very low bass sounds are there. So all of that is there. Uh, but they, would, they are all known and unknown. They are all objects. Being objects, there will be objects to consciousness. Being objects, they are not, they are appearances. Yeah. Yes, quick. Not advice. No, no, he's saying, he is saying <laughs> He's I pointing it out no, to I you through that. I believe that. that no, you don't have to believe it, you have to understand it. Not, but I have to understand I am yes. thinking that yes, the Brahman is true. Everything is false, that beauty is true, we are existing, we are acting. Then do you think he is advising us to work as a Nishkam karma? Because we realize everything is false, the only we can act, we don't care for the effect because it is false. We have to work because we are existing. We are accepting the uh, 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 relative truth. I got it. I, I got it. I, I wouldn't quite put it in those terms, but yes. All of that, all the conclusions of Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, they follow very easily from this kind of conclusion. We'll see something very similar next verse. So, what does the enlightened person experience then when the physical body dies? Does anything change for them? Do uh, they go it's, to the it, astral? Because it's the actual, astral is an experience, but if it's an experience, then it's an object. So it's right, natural. right, right. So correct, correct. What happens? In fact, it's a very good question. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a question asked in Vedanta. You have to, I just answer in brief. And later we can talk about it. You know, the entire Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Jain, the entire Indian conception of uh, multiple lifetimes. So the idea is, after the death of the physical body, what happens to us? Your question is, what happens to the enlightened person? But first, what happens to us? The person, suppose we are not enlightened, then what happens to us? Yes. The answer would be, we travel. Yes. We travel. Travel means... Um, Physical body falls apart, the Atman and the subtle body, which is called the Jivatman, the sentient being, that goes, that sort of, they say it curls up into like a seed form, 
and it goes into other worlds. What, how and why? Because of our past karma, it goes to other worlds. And then finally, because of our past karma, we get newer bodies and we are reborn again and so on. So the cycle continues for the rest of us. What happens to the enlightened person? The cycle stops. Not that at death, it's already stopped. The moment the person becomes enlightened, you realize you are one consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss. Not only you are not born again, you realize you have never been born actually. Uh, you realize you are the screen, not the movie. Uh, so the answer to your question directly is, does the enlightened person go to other planes like astral or whatever? No. For that, for that person, this plane and other planes, they all become appearances. They all become appearances. They are, they are not real. They are something experienced within this body, uh, within this uh, awareness. As long as the body and mind last, you will have these experiences. Once the individual body and mind goes, you remain as that infinite being. So do they go to a, to a mental they, they do not go. It's, it's not a physical plane. Remember, the physical plane, mental plane, astral plane, yeah. astral plane, all of them are appearances in one consciousness which they find themselves to be. But there are worlds above the astral, so where then the astral body dies, then you go to the... If there are, see, the multiple worlds also are appearances. Look at the, look at the theories, we've already dismissed it. The 14 words, he talks, the knowers of the world say that the ultimate reality are these different planes of existence. That is one of the theories. I can tell you theory number of which one. And Gaurapada dismisses them on the ground that those are also objects. They are things which are experienced. I will ask you to understand this in this way. That imagine what happens to you when you wake up. Where did the person who was walking around, say in Central Park or um, wherever, suddenly you snap up and you find you are sitting on your bed. Suppose somebody asks, that person in Central Park, where did that person go? Said, oh, will you say that she returned to her apartment and sat up in the bed? Not really. What you will say was the whole thing was an appearance in me. I was sleeping and dreaming the whole thing. That's what you will say. The enlightened person says that this whole business of coming and going, birth and death, different planes of existence, the entire thing was an appearance. We'll talk about it. It's coming now. Okay, hold on, hold on to your horse. You want to make a comment? Okay. Yes, please, because it's important, uh, at least to me. Um, but the, uh, I have to jump a little bit. The, the guru of uh, Yogananda, for example, he was enlightened in my opinion, or it must have been, but he went to a world above the astral, out, so he went to another place because he appeared to him. So either he was not enlightened or, so that is my confusion. Right. Um, I'll say two things. One is, even in, in the literature, in Ramakrishna Vivekananda literature, if you see, they will talk about people who are enlightened and yet do not be, are not one with Brahman or with the universal. They can come back again. Vivekananda is supposed to be one of them. So there are people who retain their individuality and then they can come back again. They, they help other beings and so on. Now, from their point of view, the, the dream is continuing, but they know it to be a dream. It's like the waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Continue, but you know you are Turiya, the fourth. Right? So, so that is possible. Um, 
from their point of view, an individuality continuing in the plane of appearance is no problem at all because it's realized, it's, uh, it is uh, understood to be the one theory or one, one consciousness. It's like saying, once you realize it's a movie, you have the option of switching up the movie or keep playing the movie. It makes no difference to you. In fact, if you want to enjoy the movie, you keep playing the movie. Just because it's a movie, why do you have to switch it off? But you have to realize it's a movie first. Yeah. So then even for him to go to another world outside the astral or mental plane, wherever, it's still it, just a movie, but in a different From way. that person's perspective, yes. From, he would, from an Advaitic perspective, he would still be definitely an enlightened person. Yeah. You might choose to stop seeing movies altogether or see movies. To but to yes, but you know that it's a movie. Yeah. You know that you are the reality in which the movie is playing. That sets you free. After that, whether you play the movie or not, is not so much of a problem from a non-dualistic perspective. Yeah. You just answered the $64,000. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you had a question. Just ask the question. I will not answer it now, but go ahead. A okay. yeah. um, couple of questions, actually. If the consciousness is always there, why don't, why none of us have any memories of how we have experienced it beyond what we experience today. And a uh, huge fan of YouTube <laughs> videos. And uh, at a level, I can't explain it rationally, but at a level, it feels everything that you say all true. And it feels, you kind of get convinced. Why is it so difficult to realize? Mm -hmm. Okay. One specific question and many, one broad question which many people ask. Mm -hmm. One question is that if it's, this consciousness is there always, why don't we have any memories of any other experiences beyond our limited circle of experience? You know, what we each of us individually experienced. If it's one consciousness always there. Remember, look at what you said. You said, use two words, consciousness and memory. Now, consciousness is that which reveals which enables experience. In you also it's functioning, it, it's revealing your experience of your life, in me also, in, in everybody. And, and Vedanta says you are that consciousness. You are not these individual persons being revealed by consciousness or enabled by consciousness. Now memory is a weak thing. Memory is a function of your mind. See these things are Vedanta basics. What is memory? Memory, chitta is a function of the mind. So when it functions, when you are working through your mind and sense organs in your waking state, dream state, the memory records something. Some of it is retained, most of it is forgotten or pushed to almost inaccessible levels. Hmm? So if I say, did you, um, um, if I ask you what you ate for lunch today, you'll be able to tell me. What you had for lunch yesterday, you'll be able to tell me. But if I ask you what you had for lunch on uh, Halloween last year, Maybe you might not, if, unless it was a very memorable or scary lunch, <laughs> a Halloween-y lunch, but you would probably won't be able to tell me. But you're sure that you did eat. And it was a conscious experience of eating. And yet you don't have any memory of it anymore. There are millions of things. What you ate today in, on this day, 10 years ago. You laugh, it's impossible, I, how do I remember? But you did eat. All these years you have been eating lunch, otherwise you wouldn't be here today. So you had these conscious experiences of having lunch for so many years of your life. Almost nothing of which you can recall. Does it mean it never happened? Of course it did happen. What is, what is failing is memory. So memory is a weak thing. Memory is a weak thing. It works 
depending on the brain, on the mind, and a lot of things in the back are either pushed to the subconscious levels or completely forgotten and so on. Uh, let's go ahead. All right. Oh, the general question was, why is it so difficult to realize? Keep coming to the class <laughs> or at least listening to YouTube videos. See, once, this is the question which people ask, especially in non-dual Vedanta. Once you begin to get what they're talking about, immediate reaction is, wow, this is so straight. You get an intuition of two things. One is, it should be instantaneous because it's available here and now. And second thing you feel is, it should be effortless. I am that. Why should it? To see the mistaken snake as a real rope, to understand that it's a movie and, and there's a screen behind it, to know that the ornaments are gold, how much effort does it take? It should be almost effortless. So this also should, should be almost effortless. And then the question comes, why is it so difficult then? So it's difficult and easy. If you're ready for it, very easy. If you're not ready for it, lifetimes, uh, it could be. But what else will you do? <laughs> That's why one great teacher, non-dual Vedantin, if you ask him, why is it so difficult? What is to be done? Why are we not realizing it? Then you keep on listening to this and thinking about it and meditating, Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, not working. Repeat. I've been repeating 20 years, Swami, you don't know, 20, 30 years I've been coming and listening. <laughs> Somehow or the other I've been thinking and meditating upon it. Not working. So his answer is, better luck next life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but non-dualists can be sort of exclusive that way. But there are other methods also. So you supplement it all with devotion, with japa, uh, puja, many other things are there. So for sadhana, many, many practices are there. The real difficulty lies not in Brahman. Brahman is very simple. Not even in these texts. They are also very straightforward. Once you begin to get the hang of it, you will get the hang of everything. All of it. Uh, complication is in us. Anybody who has tried a little bit of sadhana, a little meditation, little service, little, I understand it, let me try to live up to it, immediately you run up against complication. And that complication is inside us, not here. That's why it takes time. You know, the, the story of the person, the guru, you know, whose uh, answer to a question like yours is holding on to a tree and telling the student, set me free, set me free. The student said, let go. The guru said, exactly. But let go is not so easy. Suppose I'm holding on like this tightly and, he's, and he says, set me free from this. Let go. I can't let go. Then if you have to pry open my fingers one by one, you are going to have to work hard and it's going to hurt me also. But it's because I'm putting that, that effort into it. Alright. Now let's go ahead. Gaurapada gave us a list of multiple theories. Now he says all of them are appearances in consciousness. And you cannot deny it. God, if God exists. God exists for you as a belief in your awareness. God exists for you as a theory. God exists for you as an experience also. Suppose you had divine vision of God. Where? Did you have it, uh, an experience without consciousness? No. In your consciousness only you had it. So ultimately all of these, Gaurapada says, are, he, is, he says, they are all imagined in the Atman. Remember, he does not deny the experience of it. He does not deny their relative utility also. It helps. But he denies their absolute truth. 
all these theories, what they did, that is the truth they have found. Whatever they said, whether it is Prakriti, whether it is God, whether it is the 14 worlds, whether it is the um, atoms or whatever it is, that is the ultimate truth. There, that's what they said. Now let's come to verse number 28, 29. <laughs> Tam chavati sabhutvaso tadgraha samupaititam tadgraha samupaititam Let me give you the English translation. <coughs> Anyone to whom a teacher may show a particular object as the reality sees that alone and that to, thing too protects him by becoming identified with him that ab absorption leads to his self-identity with the object of attention. Now, this may seem a little, what it said seems a little dry and philosophical. It's a very important verse. What he says here is, our ideas, belief systems, he says, we come to various belief systems, all of us. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, you would have been a Muslim. You're born in um, some Christian country, you'll be Christian. You're born in uh, India, you might be a Hindu. Just because you're born into it. Not because really we have, uh, you know, examined it and found it to be true or something like that. Or, you're born into something and then you come across a book, a teacher, somebody else comes and somebody inspires you and you take up a new idea. You know, it doesn't have to be a religion. It could be agnosticism or atheism. Yeah. One, one gives up, many people give up the religion of their uh, childhood when they become more intellectual and read and look around and say, oh, all this was nonsense, superstitious. Now, all of these, he says, as we find teachers, Godapada says, as we find teachers and what, what we are taught, what seems conviction, what we take up from the teacher, that alone becomes the reality for us, for that person, for that point of time. And coming specifically to religion, he says, what happens is, okay, but they are all, according to Gaurapada, they are all some kind of object or the other. And they are therefore all imagined in the subject. All of these objects. Now, therefore, he says, the approach of non-duality to dualistic religions, this is a con consequence, there is a very important point here, that the idea of God, for example, in fact, the list of 35 philosophies starts with God. If you see, verse number 20, pranaiti pranavida, there, prana actually is a technical word referring to Ishwara or Hiranyagarbha. If you remember, uh, the Advaitic conception, the Mandukya conception of God. What is that? At the physical level, gross level, God is Virat, consciousness associated with the entire universe. At the subtle level, God is called Hiranyagarbha, consciousness associated with all the, all the minds, 
the subtle bodies of all beings, Hiranyagarbha. And at the causal level, God associated, the consciousness associated with Maya is called Ishwara, or literally God, what we, the closest we get to God. And in fact, the precise um, counterpart of the term God would be that Ishwara, the causal level, because the Ishwara actually is what is meant by God, because the other two, Hiranyagarbha and Virat, those two identities, they come and go. Why do they come and go? When the universe is created, Srishti, subtle universe, physical universe, then consciousness becomes associated with them and becomes the cosmic mind, the entire cosmic person, so Virat or Hiranyagarbha, but those identities will be lost when the universe is destroyed. Do you see what I am saying? When the universe, you know, you have the cycle of the universes. So, when the universe is destroyed, what remains? Consciousness alone with Maya. Ba basically, in Hinduism, destruction means the effect going back to the cause. The pot going back to the clay. The ornament being melted back into gold. That is destruction. Not that everything is wiped out. So, the potential for new creation still remains. The tree going back to the seed. Again, new, new creation will come out. But, when there is no creation at all, when God alone remains with the power of Maya, that, that is called Ishwara, it's a causal state. And uh, um, the second state, that is the subtle state, consciousness associated with all minds, Hiranyagarbha, another name for that is Prana. So basically he was talking about God there. So all these dualistic ideas of God, the important point here is non-dualism, Gaudapada, he is saying, first of all, shockingly, they are all appearances. Because they are objects, as theories, in, even in your experience, even if you experienced it, they are appearances, by which he means they are not the ultimate truth. What is the ultimate truth? Even in the Mandukya scheme, what is the ultimate truth? Is Ishwara the ultimate truth or Turiya? Turiya. You don't seem convinced. One, two, three, four. The first one is the waker in the waker's universe. At that level, God would be called Virat. Second one is the dreamer in the dream universe. At that level, God would be called Hiranyagarbha. The third one, deep sleeper in the deep sleep darkness, blankness. At that level, God would be called Ishwara. But they are all three, are, they come and go, they appear in one reality, one underlying reality, it is Turiya. So the individual and the cosmic, the cosmic is God, the individual is us, both appear and disappear in one consciousness. So that consciousness alone is real for Gaudapada, the others are appearances. So for Gaudapada, the god of dualistic religions, remember this is the precise thing. If you say, my Krishna is, an, is a person apart from me, a divine person, then Gaudapada will say that's an appearance. If you say, my Krishna is actually pure consciousness appearing in that particular form, then Gaudapada is fine with it. This is the distinction. Because, you see, in all our uh, puja, all the worship that we do, for us, Ramakrishna or Rama or Krishna or Durga or Kali, the different forms of gods and goddesses or the avatars or us, each of us, what are we? We are that Satchidananda with that particular name and form. We are that Turiya in this particular appearance. Yeah. If you say the necklace is an ultimate reality and there is no, 
then we would say it is false. The ultimate reality is the gold there, which is appearing right now as a necklace. Yeah. So that distinction Gaurapada is making here. He is, number one, he is not dismissing religion. This is the important thing. He is not dismissing religion. We'll come to it. What is the use of religion? He is not dismissing religion. He's just saying, taking what religions do is they put forward a particular object as the ultimate reality, which he does not agree with. If it's an object, there must be some falsehood in, in, involved in that. You say, why? Sri Ramakrishna saw Mother Kali not once. She, he saw Kali all throughout his life. What would Gaudapada say to that? He would say that one consciousness, Turiya, is appearing as the Divine Mother with that name and form to Ramakrishna. There Gaudapada is fine. But if you say, no, I am this person and Kali is a separate thing apart from me. Gaudapada would say, no, that's an appearance. You are wrong there. Now, is it wrong to follow these things? He says, no. God, it is a very interesting verse. He says, when you follow these teachings of different religions, what happens is, one becomes, he says, one becomes absorbed in that teaching. That alone, my Krishna alone is the reality. You become absorbed and identified with that. And that helps you. That helps you, that development of the mind, that concentration, that you are after all, you are coming into contact with the reality, though in a particular name and form. From that, next you have to come to non-duality, where you will get freedom. That is what Gaudapada is saying here. It brings you, he says, it is like a uh, stage which brings you to non-duality. So it's like a stage which brings you to non-duality. He is criticizing it if you put it forward as the last word. The problem with the dualistic religions is, if you note, the problem with the dualistic religions is, they each put forth some object, a divine object. First of all, as an object, without appreciating the fallacy involved there. And once you do that, you are immediately in conflict with everybody else. You are immediately in conflict with everybody else. Um, so, my Krishna alone is the reality. What about Shiva? What about Vishnu? What about Allah? What about Father in Heaven? Now, you'll see the dualistic religions, how they handle this. They will handle it by saying, for example, one strategy is to say, they are all lower realities. And my Krishna is the highest reality. So, I talked with uh, a, a devotee of Krishna, a monk of a particular religious order, who are very staunch in their devo devotion to Krishna. And immediately he quoted, it says so in the Vishnu Puran, it says so in the, uh, in the uh, Gita, that I am the ultimate reality. And who is saying that? You can't argue, it's a Krishna saying that. We will say it is that he, when Krishna says I am the ultimate reality, he means pure consciousness. But he says, why go to all that? It's simple, Krishna is there, he's blue and he's, uh, he's the charioteer of Arjuna and he's saying I am the ultimate reality. Fine, that Krishna is the ultimate reality. If you go to Vishnu Purana or something, then what about Shiva? Yes, Shiva is there. But Shiva is the servant of Vishnu there. <laughs> now, the problem arises with this kind of interpretation is, I also said it to that monk, but exactly the same thing is said about Vishnu and, uh, about Shiva in Shiva Purana. Shiva, is, Shiva says, I am the ultimate reality. If you go to Devi Purana, the Divine Mother says, I am the ultimate reality. It's switched around. Then, you know what is the response? No. 
there is an incredible uh, blankness there. They refuse to acknowledge the existence of those texts totally. It's a kind of uh, very, very, very strange uh, approach. There's only this text, the other one, no. This one says it, fine, that's the, that's the end. Now, this is what Gaudapada criticizes. This is a narrow approach. This dualistic approach leads to religious fanaticism and conflict. This leads to religious fanaticism and conflict. What does Gaudapada say about yoga? We'll see. So, already, if you see the list of um, philosophies, he already mentioned it. He says, though there are those who believe in 25 principles. One, one of the list was there. That is the yoga philosophy. You know what it will say, what Godapada will say. So, um, they immediately come into conflict with each other. Godapada will mention these dualistic philosophies, dualistic religions, they are in conflict with each other. We have no conflict with any of them. We have no conflict with any of them. How do we not have any conflict with any of them? What we say, what or the non-dualist says, is that what Gaudapada is saying here is that same Turiya, the same Satchidananda appears as Ishwara, the god of this universe, in conjunction with Maya. And that infinite Ishwara can be conceived of and is conceived of and worshipped as Krishna, as Rama, as the Divine Mother, as Vishnu, as Shiva, as Allah, as Jesus and Father in Heaven, Jehovah and so on. It's possible. Why is it possible? Because it's an infinite reality beyond words. When you try to put it in words, when you try to put it within a particular cultural framework, you will get different ways of putting it. And are, are, they, are they correct? They are, they are alright as long as they lead you to this non-dual reality. And if you stop there, that, that is the only thing, then it's not correct. It cannot be, because to make that correct, to make my X idea of God correct, I have to say Y and Z are wrong. <coughs> if only that is correct. But if you say there is an unnameable infinite reality which appears as X, Y and Z, I can equally accept and respect X, Y and Z. Because in that way I am touching that my ultimate non-dual reality. I will come to you. Let me finish the whole thing. So what Gaudapada suggests is, if somebody is engaged in the dualistic worship, the Advaitic idea, Gaudapada's ideas don't disturb them, but show them the path to non-dual. His, his view is, ultimately for freedom, for realization, uh, for enlightenment, you will have to end up in the Wednesday class. <laughs> that's, that's, his, <laughs> that's his take on it. But all of those other approaches are good. And we see it practically. If somebody has been a seeker, in his or her own tradition or in different traditions, I have often seen ultimately ending up in some non-dualistic teaching or the other. It doesn't have to be Advaita Vedanta. It could be Tibetan Buddhism. It could be some form of higher spirituality. I call this a kind of finishing school for spirituality. So people who have been exploring a long time, they find it satisfactory finally. Now an objective reality and you take it to be final, it will exclude everything else. That itself is suspicious. The truth must be all-inclusive. This alone is true and everything else is false. Immediately a red flag should be raised there. So what Gaudapada says, all of them are helpful. He says, all are false because all are appearances, but they all lead to the truth. For a false does not mean, not in the sense of an exclusivist false. 
When the exclusivist says that it is false, my religion alone is right, everything else is false, you should be converted into my religion or killed. Uh -huh. That is an exclusivist approach. Gaudapada is not saying that. He is saying all of them can lead to non-duality. All of them taken by themselves are false. They take some object or the other as reality. But all of them point back to the reality which you are alone are. And they can lead you to that reality. Just one more point, um, two quick points here. How is this different from atheism, number one? And how is it different from Sri Ramakrishna's approach? First of all, how is it different from Sri Ramakrishna's approach? Gaurapada, he would insist that from any kind of dualistic practice, if you do it seriously, it will lead you to non-dualism of the kind that he is teaching. So you ultimately have to come to him for enlightenment. Because he is saying, I am not, not saying it in a sectarian way. Suppose you say, all of these philosophies you are rejecting, 35 philosophies. Why not reject 36, your philosophy also? One more, add one more and reject it. <laughs> but he says, that this, you are making a category mistake. All of these 35 are appearances, they are objects, they are talking about some kind of object or the other. I am talking about the one to which all of these are appearing, the one which cannot be denied. So, the way Gaurapada presents it, one must appreciate that he is not presenting it as an alternative to different religions. This religion versus that religion. He is saying, no, no, no. Whether it's a religion, whether it is science, whether it is atheism, complete non-belief, complete, he talked about a complete materialist. All of them can be put in one category. That is, they take some object out there to be the reality. We are asking to whom is this all appearing? Who is the consciousness? Who is the one who, is an, who proclaims now that I am an atheist or a theist or a Vaishnava or a Shaivite or a Christian or a Muslim? So, Gaudapada's philosophy cannot be put in the category of those 35 philosophies. So, that's his approach. Sri Ramakrishna's approach here, notice, when he goes to different people, what he does is, he encourages them. That whether it's a Brahmo, whether it's a Vaishnava, whether it's a Tantric, Muslim, Christian, he encourages them in their own path. And if he finds them sincere, he praises them. And he says, you should go along this way and it will lead to the truth. Jyotomot Tatopa. Infinite paths to infinite reality. By the way, that's the topic of the talk. Ayan Maharaj will be giving here on the 28th. If you see the flyer outside. So infinite, that's the name of the book also. Being released by Oxford University Press this month. Uh, infinite paths to infinite reality. Sri Ramakrishna says that. He just says, don't be fanatical. One thing he criticizes is that narrowness. When he goes to the Brahmos who don't like worship of images, who don't like the, the, um, what the Vaishnavas are doing, he says to them, look at their fervor, look at their intense attachment to Krishna, take that, Uday Tantukulao, he, he says to the Brahmos, who are very philosophical, reform-minded, liberal, but being liberal and reform-minded, you also lack a certain intensity. So he said, look at the intensity of those people who love Krishna. You may not do all those things, but you take that intensity. So don't be fanatical. Don't be narrow. Expand and learn from others also. Take what's good from, from there and you progress in spiritual life. The difference between this and Gaudapada is Gaudapada would say, all of those are helpful. Finally, come here. One stop solution <laughs> to, to Gaudapada. 
Sri Ramakrishna says all of those will ultimately lead you to the highest reality. Which he will have no problem if Gaudapada puts it in his terms. It's a non-dual reality. But Sri Ramakrishna says there's no problem. You don't have to come to Gaudapada also. You don't have to become a labelled non-dualist also. You're a Christian. If you stick to your path, you will. There are, have been so many Christian mystics who have had that non-dual experience. So you can proceed along different paths. And all that is required is sincere holding on to your path and seeking. So that's Sri Ramakrishna, Gaudapada. I hope I've made it clear. How is it different from atheism? You see, why is the question arising at all? It's arising because many people, first of all, they see it as a criticism of religion. In one sense, it is a criticism of religion, what Gaudapada is doing here. He seems to be rejecting, if you take the religion at its own words, he seems to be rejecting that. So how is it different? The atheist is the one, or agnostic, is the one who says that there is no higher reality. The agnostic is the one who has a question about it. The dualist is the one who says, yes, there is a higher reality. I am there and there is a reality called God. The qualified monist says that I am there and there is a higher reality and I am part of that higher reality. Vishishta Dvaita. This is Dvaita. Advaita says that there is only that higher reality and I am that, am an appearance in that. My individuality is an appearance in that. That one alone, that Brahman, the Turiya or Brahman, that one alone is the ultimate reality. There is only one. It's not denying that ultimate reality. Denying that or questioning that is agnosticism or atheism. It's in fact in one way just the opposite of atheism. What we normally take to be religion is this position. That I believe something is there. Ultimate reality. And then we quarrel about that. We quarrel about that ultimate reality. Somebody says it's Vishnu. Somebody says it's Shiva. Somebody says Allah. Somebody says it's Jehovah. And we quarrel about it. And we say that is separate. I am separate. Gaudapada here would say the whole thing is an appearance. It's, you're making a mistake. Even here he would say you're making a mistake. Here he would say definitely it's a mistake. He would say ultimate reality alone, Brahman alone exists, or Turiya alone exists. So this is the difference. It's not atheism. Um, a great, a very senior monk once visited our training center where young novices were being trained. And he, see, it was before my time. Apparently he asked, what are you teaching the boys? And one of the masters said, we are teaching uh, the Mandukya Karika, this book. And he said, no, 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 don't teach them that. They'll become atheists. Nastik hoi jabi. They'll become atheists. Yeah. All right. No, no, no. Gaudapada would prefer this one, dualism over agnosticism. He would prefer this one over <laughs> that one. See, there is a... Gaurapada's position is not that there could be something I don't know. Agnostic position is uncertain. I don't know. There could be something. I'm not denying that there could be a God. But I also don't know that there is a God. The, the theist is one who, has, who is firmly convinced that there is a God. Which denies? Uh, no, no. But Gaurapada does not deny there is a God. Gaurapada denies that what you are considering a separate object as God. One of those 35 theories. 
that is tradition it's an appearance it's not ultimate reality that ultimate reality is the only thing that exists that's what godapada is saying but godapada would prefer this over that because at least this person has an apprehension of that ultimate reality though he is conceiving of it as an object out there whereas this person has not yet he is still floating yeah all right let's go yes you had a question Yes. Because religion has been there for thousands of years. Yes. And in today's age, more and more people are becoming atheists, hmm. which is exactly the opposite of Brahman. So, religion hasn't really led to people to Brahman. I mean, it is leading people to becoming more. No, what Gaurapada says, if you follow that, look at what the verse said. As the teacher teaches a, uh, something, to, so whatever, whatever that is, when you find some kind of teaching. and you follow it sincerely you identify with it and that leads you to this atman but over the last 5000 years how many of those people um, actually followed it sincerely and suppose you ask how many were truly good muslims how many were truly good christians how many were truly good hindus if they were there actually sincerely followed it did they not get something out of it they got something out of it nobody denies that and gorapada says that's very good they are pointing in the right direction your what you asked is an entirely different question in today's world many people are losing belief in traditional religion yeah that's true that's why the importance of non dualism swami vivekananda said the only religion for modern man will be this for non dualism advaita vedanta he said why do i stress this because in today's age only religion for rational man he said He said, "Only religion. If you believe in reason, if it's very difficult for you to accept the teachings of traditional religion, Gorapad is not against it. But it's very difficult to accept the teachings of traditional religion. Yeah. Then Advaita is for you. Yes. Who was Gorapad's teacher? We um, have Buddhist influence. Yes, there, there is a Buddhist influence definitely. But if you see the Guru Parampara, uh, Shuka, Vyasa, Shuka." uh then godapada i think parashara parashara shakti um then shakti is parashara parashara is godapada parashara is not godapada parashara is the teacher of godapada uh right now i forgotten the the exactly uh, lineage but is that just shakti. 1400 years ago no so that's a traditional way of thinking about it but if you are asking two questions who was godapada's teacher we are not very sure about that uh, but uh, if you're asking the other question was there buddhist influence definitely there was buddhist influence buddhists were very powerful and very strong what it's a whole issue if you read nikhilanji's book there's a i think 10 20 page introduction which goes into it it's a huge controversy how much buddhist influence is there on gaudapada some will go so far as to say the mandukya karika is a buddhist text it's so close but godapada himself says for example in one place you have to look at my talk uh, quenching the firebrand i had a talk on this very to- topic uh, godapada himself says he says naitat buddhena bhashitam this was not taught by the buddha but that itself raises a question why would you need to say that <laughs> so the conclusion is there is definitely heavy buddhist influence i have been studying the pre godapada buddhism even in recent times tremendous similarity not only of technique but language and conclusion one one later buddhist teacher shantarakshita he says in a buddhist text uh, he says 
Literally, he says, these fellows are saying exactly what we are saying. And it's a slightly dismissive way, you know, like they're, they're, it's a case of stolen goods. <laughs> and you'll find when the, the discussions are going on between Buddhists of one school. Remember, there are other Buddhists with which Advaita does not agree at all. And the Shunyavada Buddhist also does not agree with those schools. There's heavy criticism of the other schools of Buddhism. There's one school of Buddhism, which is the Madhyamaka Buddhism of Nagarjuna, which is very close to Advaita Vedanta, almost like a mirror image. Um, and you see the dialectics between Advaita masters and Madhyamaka masters um, in those texts. You'll often I found corresponding language. The, for example, Vidyaranya and Panchadashi, she says, if this is what the Buddhist means by Shunya, then welcome, you have accepted our thesis. And I found almost 800 years before Vidyaranya, this book I was reading, Tarkat Jwala, there he says, and if the Vedantin means this, then welcome, you have come into our fold. You see, there is tremendous similarity. It's almost like, they are not saying exactly the same thing, they are almost like stating it in mirror images. They are saying the same thing, just the other way around. I have mentioned this earlier. Um, look at the one good way of, of understanding the difference between, say, um, Madhyamaka Buddhism, Shunyavada, which is the standard philosophy of Tibetan Buddhism, Dalai Lama and others. Their position and our position, one, the final difference would be like this. One good way of understanding it is to see the misunderstandings of both. What each accuses the other of. We accuse the Shunyavadi of what? Of being nihilists. Ultimately they are saying nothing exists. What is the ultimate teaching of Shunyavada? We say, oh you are saying nothing exists. But in their own texts if you see, if you are fair to them, if you see Nagarjuna's own Madhyamaka Karika, he says, we have never said that there is nothing. What is the ultimate reality? Is it something that exists? We say no. Is it something that does not exist? We say no. Is it something that both exists and does not exist? We say no. Is it something that neither exists and nor does not exist? No. Four alternatives. Tetralema it's called in modern philosophy. Chatushkoti in Sanskrit. See, Nagarjuna says, Chatushkoti Chatushkoti Vinirmuktam, the principle which is free of these four alternatives. And what is that principle? He chooses to call it Shunya, Shunyata, the voidness. So it's not nothing. Okay. And now what do they accuse us of? They say, you are talking about a thing. There is a thing called Brahman, Turiya. Is it there? So it's a thing. And they show that the ultimate reality, you yourself, cannot be a thing, cannot be an object. But as you say, you will immediately say, but all this while Gaurapada is arguing that it's not an object. Correct. This is what is missed out in the, you will see, if you see the presentations, there's a, there are books, they're called doxographies actually. If you see them, uh, the Buddhist, ancient Buddhist scholars, when they present different views and cut them down. In the list is, we are also on the hit list. So, Vedanta. <laughs> The earliest ones you see, the presentations, are crude presentations. They don't make these fine distinctions which Gaurapada is making. It says, for example, it says, there is a golden being called Brahman 
and when you when the when you sit in when the vedantin sits in meditation he merges into that golden being called brahman and becomes immortal now it sounds like a thing he's literally translate, translating you know um, aditya varnam tamasa parastam he's translating that but the finer meanings he does not take it up so my point here is we accuse unfairly the tibetan buddhists or the madhyamaka of preaching nothingness emptiness is not nothingness and they accuse us unfairly of preaching a thing an object called brahman so what is it then what is the ultimate conclusion it's not a thing it's not nothing i call it no thing if you say no thing i agree as a non dualist and a buddhist the tibetan buddhist also would agree yes is shunya a no thing yes is turiya a no thing yes All right. Let's hear the questions, but we'll need to move ahead. Quick. Um, is Turiya like uh, the Nirguna Brahman? Similar? Not like. Is it, it is the Nirguna Brahman. Turiya is the Nirguna Brahman. Yes. Yes. Okay, sorry. The question may sound a little dark. Uh, but before we go to Baba telling us, he was dismissive of religion as is practiced in the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in the process, he's dismissive of a lot of things that that lead us to kind of lead our lives the way we do: ethics, morality, uh, a sense of purpose that we have during the day. I mean, he's telling us all this is interference and it's all false. And so, if one takes, I mean, there's a lot of positive you can take out of it. But if you go to the darker side, I mean, he just takes away some of the basic things that we use to lead our lives. I wouldn't deny that. it's not what he's saying but that could be one interpretation and people have interpreted it that way and gone to the doom <laughs> by interpreting it that way yes that's why this is mandukya upanishad and mandukya karika that's why it is always locked up in the safe with <laughs> um keys i i visited in the hudson there's a submarine uh, the the growler you know the interpret museum so it's one of the early nuclear submarines of it's not a nuclear it's a diesel submarine but it used to launch nuclear missiles so we went on a tour inside that and there the captain they have a safe the captain had a safe with a l- locker and everything and if the com- command came from the president he would launch those missiles at soviet union in the 1960s they would carry m- m- hydrogen bombs in those missiles so that's the ultimate thing the whole submarine exists for that that locker and it's locked up there so the locker which is locked up here what you open it you will find the gaurapada karika there <laughs> now you are expected to be a mature person to handle it it can easily lead to um it can lead to atheism it can lead to nihilism it can lead to denial of you know i don't care for anything it can lead straight to suicide also it's a, it's a very dangerous text if you take it seriously now what is the mature way of handling it the mature way of handling it is look at what gaurapada says all of these practices are good because they lead to non dual realization they can lead to non dual realization they help you to develop spiritually not only that if you take non duality as taught by gaurapada seriously it actually gives all religions a grounding i'll tell you something vivekananda said i don't know exactly where it may sound harsh i will tell you openly here minus this religion is superstition with this every religion gets grounding i am happy to not only that next 
the, the world parliament we are talking about. Harmony between religions, respect between religions. There is no way you can do that from a dualistic perspective. From a dualistic perspective, notice, especially the intensely dualistic religions are also the, the ones which are the most hateful. It's very interesting. The ones which are entirely bhakti oriented, devotion oriented, they talk about love. Could be Krishna, could be Christ. But when you look at them in, in action, it's love for my ideal and within the community and hatred for everybody else. Why? They are wrong. They are condemned to hell. They are going to burn in hell. I have had talks with theologians and all. They say, no, 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 this is not, all things are right. They cannot be right because they are, con they are saying contradictory things. How can they be right? Now, only one, so right is only one thing is right and everything else is false. And in, invariably it's interesting how that person's religion turns out to be the right thing. <laughs> whoever it is, it's a Christian theologian, Muslim theologian, whoever it is. Or a Vaishnava theologian, you'll say, look, in the world there's one truth and everything else is false. In every case. So, in religion also, there must be one true religion, everything else must be false. The next step if you go for, you say, okay, then what are you saying? Strangely enough, turns out to be that person's religion, which is the one truth and everything else is false. It has to be like that. Gaudapada will mention it in the next chapter. Parasparam virudhyante. They are bound to come in conflict because they take one object to be real apart from everything else. Logically, it will lead to conflict. I'll come to you. Whereas, from this perspective, if it is that infinite subject, which is my own identity, which is us, all of us, that one alone is now worshipped as a method of worship, as an expression of my spirituality, as Krishna or Christ. Notice, immediately harmony is there. I cannot love Krishna and hate Christ. It's as good as hating Krishna. It's as good as that. Harmony of religions is immediately established if you take non-dualism in a mature sense. Harmony of science and religion is established. Otherwise, if you take dualistic religion and objective religion as the truth, it will immediately come into conflict with science. My books say this. No matter what you did discover, I'm, it's evidence proof. Whatever evidence you throw at it, I will reject it. It comes religion-science conflict. Secular world, religious world conflict. Traditional religions are bound to have that conflict. They'll have conflicts with secular governments, they'll have conflicts with secular ways of life. This has no problem. What is your secular life? It's also a manifestation of the same Turiya. Everything is a manifestation of the same Turiya. It's an incredibly, if you take it positively, which Vivekananda has done. You take it positively, it becomes the foundation of an incredible philosophy of life. Where you are at, in, at comfort with life. One great teacher, Advaita teacher, he said, Advaita Vyavahar ko mitata nahi hai. Non-dualism is not for wiping out the appearance of the world. You see, this is false, so rejected. No. He says, what does non-duality do? Non-duality makes you absolutely free in life. I can't translate the exact Hindi. I'll tell you the Hindi, see what you make of it. He said, Advait vyavahar ko mitane ke liye nahi. Advait aapko vyavahar mein nirbad banata hai. Nirbad means without any resistance. This is a literal translation. You have no resistance left in life anymore. You move freely through life. You have no enemies. You have nothing that you want to run away from. Nothing that you want to run towards also. You are absolutely comfortable with life. You are comfortable with life. You are comfortable with death also. Absolutely no problem at all. What is death and what is life to you? You are that one consciousness in which bodies are 
endlessly born and dying. You are comfortable with heaven, hell and earth. <coughs> heaven, hell and earth. There is no desperation to go to heaven. No despise, um, no, no um, uh, uh, you know, you don't consider the worldly life to be despicable. And there is no terror of hell also. Uh, Vivekananda, when he was in, traveling in the Midwest, on the train, a gentleman stood up and said, <coughs> Sir, the, what you are preaching, uh, if, he had a talk with the gentleman, if you are preaching, you are going to go to hell. And Vivekananda said to him famously, where are you going? Why? To heaven, of course. And then I'd rather go to hell. <laughs> now, a non-dualist a non has no problem with that. Because all heavens and hells are appearances in you. Even if you stay in the highest heaven, the lowest hell is also not apart from you. You are that also. And they are all appearances, though they can't touch you. There is a very beautiful story about the sage Shuka. Um, Shukadeva was regarded as a Paramahamsa and then all uh, as an ideal enlightened monk. So he comes to visit Shiva and um, walks in. And today he, he would say yo, <laughs> so, but that was the approach. And the Divine Mother Parvati, uh, she is there, Mahadevi, she is there. She is annoyed. She says, uh, "This is not a respectful approach to." respectful way of coming to the great god Shiva. Anyhow, Shuka comes, speaks with Shiva, chit-chats and go, then takes leave, like later, <laughs> and goes away. Now she is very annoyed. She says to Shiva, this boy has become arrogant. This boy has become arrogant, needs to be taught a lesson. Shiva says, no, he's a sage, he's simple, childlike, he doesn't think about these things, you know, you know, hierarchy and his God, you should come up, be very careful before God. He is uh, relaxed. So, I mean, he's, he's simple, he's childlike. The Divine Mother says, no, no, it's not good, it sets a very bad example, he must be taught a lesson. Shiva says, all right, because whatever happens in this world is the power of Maya, it's, it's under the Divine Mother. From Shiva's perspective, it's all the same. Shiva is pure consciousness. But what kind of dream? Yes, it's a dream. But what kind of dream you're going to have? A nightmare or a nice dream? That is up to the Divine Mother. So she appears before Shuka and says, You have become so arrogant. You walk around, in, there's a phrase in Hindi, with your nose upturned like a camel. Walking like a camel means an arrogant, you know. You're walking around, so, so be a camel and go and live in the desert. And of course, what she says immediately happens. So the poor sage is transformed into a camel, uh, eking out a terribly difficult life in the desert. And she comes back satisfied. She says, okay, good. Now, um, after some time, she is feeling unhappy. So she says to Shiva, I wonder how Shuka is, uh, you know, how, how he turned out, what he is doing. And Shiva knows, she is the mother, so she really can't be happy if the child is uh, unhappy. So he says, well, why don't you go and see? And that's what exactly she wanted to do. She said, okay, let me see. And she goes and she sees the um, camel chewing thorny shrubs. And she appears before the camel. And of course, the camel can speak in perfect Sanskrit. So, so she says, well, how goes it? How is life? And the camel says, 
Oh, Divine Mother, wonderful, you are here. Yes, it's wonderful. It, it, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy. Uh, earlier, I was a sage, you know, in, in, a, uh, in, a, in an ashram. And I had to give, give these Vedanta talks. And these, uh, these silly novices were there. That means the brahmacharis who are, who are novices. You know, these silly novices were there. I had to train them and so on and so forth. And then, then there's a routine to be followed and all of that. But now I'm so happy. I go wherever I please. I eat whenever I like. And there's some crude stuff there after that. <laughs> which says that I, literally it means I don't need a restroom. So, so, so what could one want? Uh, this is a... For him, this is another manifestation. He knows I am Turiya. You play this, I am the screen. You play this movie or that movie. You play a comedy or a horror movie. I'll clap for both. Yeah. I'll give Oscars to both. So the Divine Mother said, oh, this is nowhere to fix it. And she said, oh, go back to being a sage. <laughs> That's all right. The, this is a beautiful story. But it shows when you're established in what Godopad is talking about, you're perfectly comfortable with life. You are not saying that, oh, it's so boring and, and worthless now. What you are asking about, the answer to that is the lives of enlightened people. They are the most joyous lives. Look at Vivekananda or Ramakrishna. Joyous lives. They are happy. Why they are happy, you don't know. They don't have money and family and um, name. and Later on, they got name and fame. When Vivekananda became famous, what was his reaction? Do you remember? The first day he became so well known in the World Parliament of Religions, 125 years ago, he wept. That night, he wept like a child. He said, no more for me is the life of living, you know, like the unknown monk, forgotten by the world, the world forgetting, roaming about the plains of India in a loincloth. He knew that what's going to happen to him for the next 10 years of his life till he lived. Now the thing is, they don't want any of this. And they are very happy without it. How? How? All that the world puts forward as this is worth getting and this will make you happy and seems to make you happy also at least. And we are convinced about it and we are running after it because our instincts go that way and the world also tells us go this way. All of that they seem to have rejected and yet they are intensely happy, much more so than anybody else. How is it possible? What have they got that we don't have? Enlightenment. Enlightenment seems, means knowing or realizing. But what have, are they enlightened about? What have they realized? What have they found? So that every scripture talks about. The Gita says, finding which nothing greater the world can give to thee. Uh, established in which the heaviest of sorrows cannot shake you. Remember, heaviest of sorrows will come, that means. It's not say that the storms will not come. They will come. If you have a body, sickness and old age will come. If you're living in a world, insults and failures and problems will keep coming. But you have found a place of security from which you cannot be shaken anymore. That's always there for you. So this is what Godapada is talking about. In the next verse, let me read. So this last part is important. That very absorption in that particular path, it may be a dualistic religion, that finally leads him to the uh, realization of the non-dual truth. If you, those of us who have been initiated in mantras in our tradition, Guru gives you Ishta Devata, which seems to be an object and a mantra and a meditation. But also if you read uh, 
for example, Saradaranji talks about what happens when you repeat the mantra and meditate. Finally, you will have the vision of Ishta Devata. You will say, Gaurapada will say, still an object. Yes, but ultimately the distinction between knower, known and knowledge is erased in one awareness, one pure consciousness. So, ultimately the non-dual truth comes. Thirtieth. Etai resho prithag bhaveir Etai resho prithag bhaveir Prithage veti lakshitaha Prithage veti lakshitaha Evam yo veda tattvena Evam yo veda tattvena Kalpayet so vishankitaha through these things that are really non-different from the self, this one is presented as though really different. He who truly knows this grasps the meaning of the Vedas without any hesitation. A beautiful verse. In all these paths, all these religions, philosophies, whatever is presented, they are apritak, not separate from you, the consciousness. Whatever exists in the waking, dreaming and deep sleep worlds is not separate from Turiya. Whatever ornament you make is not separate from the constituent gold. Whatever the form of the waves in the ocean is not separate from water. They are not separate from you, the Turiya. And yet, prithag eveti lakshitaha they are experienced as being separate. Look at your experience. It talks about our worldly experience. Whatever you experience in the world, these are not separate from you, the Turiya, but they are experienced as being separate. The world, people, objects, cars, pets, the sky and the ocean and the park, they all seem to be objects separate from me. And yet they are not separate from you, the pure consciousness. Whenever you find such language, the easiest way to understand is refer to your dream experience. In the dream experience, everything that you see, everybody that you see and every event that happens is not separate from you, the dreamer. Correct or not? It's imagined in you. No independent existence. And yet, how is it experienced? As if separate from you. You are a subject there and there are objects there. When you wake up, both subject and object are you. Don't say there nothing is there. You are there. The dreamer was there. Remember the story of uh, the King Janaka. Is that true or is this true? And what was um, um, Ashtavakra's reply? Uh, neither this is true nor that is true. As Gaudapada says, all objects are appearances. But is nothing true. You are the truth. This is what he's saying, that you are the truth. So all of these appear to be separate. Though not separate from you, the Turiya, one who knows this, evam yoveda tattvena, one who realizes, I am the Turiya, appearing as waker and waking world right now. What is our unenlightened experience and understanding? I am the waker, correct, but this waking world is separate from me. Though yes, in the dream both were same, they are, they are none other than me, but here we are different. But from Turiya perspective, you and your world are in, uh, in you, the consciousness. They are not separate from you. Yo Veda Tattvena, one who realizes this, 
Kalpayet Swavishankita. This is an important point he makes here. That is the person who can explain Vedanta, who can interpret Vedanta correctly, with clarity, correctly, without fault. Sri Ramakrishna says, unless one is enlightened, even a mastery of the text, if you try to learn religion from him, sometimes he will say correct things, sometimes he will say wrong, wrong things. We are reading in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna yesterday, that Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of Samadhyay. He says, Samadhyay gave a lecture. Uh, God is dry. You have to make him, you know, uh, you have to, with your love and bliss, you have to make him blissful. And Sri Ramakrishna says, God who is bliss himself, look what he said. He said, God is dry. And he says, such is the case with people who have read the text, but they don't know what it really means. So sometimes they say correct things, sometimes wrong things. And then he gave the funny example of, um, he said, somebody came and said, my uncle's cowshed has lots of horses. So, so everybody laughs there and Sri Ramakrishna says, it means that there are no horses. And Dr. Sarkar was sitting there and he said, and no cows either. <laughs> he was showing off. He doesn't know what a horse is. So similarly, a person who is not enlightened will keep making slip-ups. And that will not be evident to others. We will seriously take down notes, whatever he is saying. And then we will get confused also because he has successfully transferred his confusion into us. <laughs> yes, it so happens. That's why some of our teachers used to say, read books only those who are written, those original scriptures or those written by enlightened persons. Um, don't read too much. <laughs> of course, I violated all of that. But <laughs> now, yeah, um, one Swami Ramananda Saraswati, he told this story about how if you, don't ha you haven't, haven't seen milk, you can get confused. So somebody was taught, he, he was taught that milk is white. And then another master comes along and tells him, yes, milk is white, that's not wrong. But it's only when it's white when it comes from white cows. When it comes from brown cows, milk is brown. And when it comes from red cows, milk is red. And it comes from black cows, milk is black. And this man thought, it sounds reasonable. It must be, it must be so. The fact is, whether it sounds reasonable or not, the fact is, milk is white. Whether it's a black cow, brown cow, or red cow, it is white. But he has not seen. So he gets confused immediately. The teacher who told him also has not seen. So teachers uses, uh, has read milk is white and then has some theories of his own and puts them together and teaches that. So he says, Avishankitaha, the person who realizes this truth. Not only that, Shankaracharya in his commentary, he says, not only non-dualistic texts, even dualistic texts, this person, the enlightened person can explain more correctly. Shankaracharya says, what this person will feel is when he reads the scriptures, this sentence means this and that other one means that. I have seen what has he translated the commentary as. That a certain passage, passage means this and a certain other means that. Which a person who is not enlightened may struggle with. I also told yesterday the story of Swami Adbhutananda, who was unlettered, who is called the miracle of Sri Ramakrishna. He is an enlightened person, a Brahmagyani, no of Brahman, but unlettered, he has not read any books. So they are sitting in Belurmat and a pandit, a scholar is teaching Vedanta, uh, how the self is apprehended uh, as I am Brahman. And Adbhutananda bursts out, he says to Sudhir Maharaj, Swami Shuddhananda, Sudhir, the pandit is right, this is exactly how it happens. 
and he was so excited he went on till late in the night when he would catch hold of sudhir maharaj even late in the night long after the class was over the pandit is right this is how it is he is speaking from experience and for such a person when this person they read vedanta it's a delight for them because it speaks directly to what they have seen another one this is swami shraddhanand i have shared this earlier who was in sacramento bimal maharaj when he was a young monk in belurmat he saw swami subodhananda another disciple of sri ramakrishna uh, subodhananda is here koka maharaj this is swami subodhananda who would sit on the second floor of the monastery looking out to the river ganga and to calcutta beyond the river and he would read probably adhyatma ramayana one of a uh, one version of ramayana which is very uh, philosophical and uh, devotional also sri ramakrishna loved that book one day he was reading and is looking up and laughing reading looking up and laughing so bimal maharaj shraddhanand ji went up to him and asked him swami what are you reading and why, what are you seeing and why are you laughing the swami said look these are this is a vedanta textbook it says brahman is real and when i look up i see everything the river and the city and everything sky all of it is sri ramakrishna and i burst out laughing when i look down and it says the world is an appearance and i look up and he says his his words exactly i see mountains of ashes mountains of ashes means all valueless nothing it's not it's it's nothing it's mountains of ashes all reality which seems to be there is borrowed from turiya which you are all awareness and experience which you are having of the world it's because of the consciousness of turiya which you are which turiya which is consciousness because of its light everything else is shining and all value which seems to be out there happiness beauty joy fulfillment it's not out there it's you you are basically searching for yourself outside that's why he said mountains of ashes he didn't say it's an illusion or something he said it's he he looked at it from the point of view of ananda bliss there's no bliss there mountains of ashes he directly sees brahman is real the world is an appearance it even children repeat it in india <laughs> brahma satyam jagat mithya but they don't know what it means this person he knows he, he sees directly for such people he says avishankita when such people read these books it's just the repetition of what is fact for them yeah. i can see kids in costumes yeah. yes for today for the first time in central park i felt at home P- people thought us another guy <laughs> because i am always in my halloween costume <laughs> let me just mention the just start the next four verse because i just we i will talk about it next time but let me just read it out i wanted to do the 31st verse also so all these things which we experience in the world what are they very beautiful and haunting verse comes he says all that you have seen in your life all those people things and events they are but a dream they are like a magic show they are like castles in the sky swapna maya gandharva nagara if it makes you feel unhappy don't 
Because you are the reality. The reality is always there with you. But what you see out there, the people you have been with, the events of your life, your own body, you have experienced it. It doesn't deny that you have experienced, but they are their very nature. They are not fundamentally real. They are, he says, a dream. They are but a dream, a magic show, castles in the sky. Let's read the verse. Swapnamaye yatha drishte. Swapnamaye yatha drishte. Gandharva nagaram yatha. Gandharva nagaram yatha. Tatha vishwam idam drishtam. Tatha vishwam idam drishtam. Vedante shu vichakshanehi. Vedante Shuvichakshanehi. Just as dream and magic are seen to be unreal, or as is a city in the sky, so also is this whole universe known to be unreal from the Upanishads by the wise. Those who are, Shankaracharya says, Vastu Nirnaya Nipunaha, those who are experts at discern, discerning the truth from the Upanishads. And he says, Panditaha Ityartha, they are the real scholars of the Upanishads who see the truth that this world is an appearance. Don't be afraid, not just an appearance, appearance in the truth which you are. Dream, Swapna. As is your dream, so is the waking. But the, the dream is a dream from your waking standpoint. The waking is a dream, not from waking standpoint, from Turiya standpoint. Then Maya, Maya here does not mean the Vedantic Maya which we have been reading. Maya here means magic show. Magic, another meaning of Maya is magic. Like a stage performer shows many things which seem to be there, actually aren't there. Sri Ramakrishna would often say, the magician alone is real, the mag magic is not real. <laughs> Penetrate the magic of the world and find the magician. God is the magician. Or here, Turiya, you Turiya are the magician alone. And then, castles in the sky. Shankaracharya gives a beautiful description. He says, like rows of shops spread out. Today he would say a shopping mall. <laughs> like you see in the sky, extraordinary cloud formations, especially if you go by plane. And as you are descending, you see all sorts of cloud formations, extraordinary cloud formations. So castles in the sky, city in the sky. Gandharvanagara, a city in the sky. So you see, he says, rows of shops set out, houses and palaces. Men and women walking together. Vivid imagination. All imagination. And then he says, here now, seen now, next moment gone. And then he says, such is this life also. Yes. Bill will have the last word. Go ahead. Yes. I would call it terrible. <laughs> yeah, it would be terrible. But again, from the, from the perspective of Turiya, suppose a hydrogen bomb were exploded in your dreams. It would be a nightmare. What would, ha what would happen to you in the waking state? At the most, you would wake up with a uh, heart beating fast in a cold sweat. But nothing would have happened to you at all. Similarly, in the waking life, if everything is wiped out. Literally, one teacher said, if everything in the universe itself is wiped out, you still exist. Not one thing which is real is lost. Well, wiped out means what? They lose those particular configurations and they remain as you yourself. 
you are that reality in which the universe appears, stays and disappears. It's worth thinking about. And I think this is the only kind of philosophical approach which is acceptable. This is the only solution to evil also, to evil and suffering. If the terrible things which have happened in the world are, are happening, if they are absolutely real, then there is no, there is no escape from it. Then there is uh, no solution to anything. Given God and heaven are no solutions to it. If they really did happen and they are absolutely real, what kind of a God would it be? What kind of a heaven would it be? Why would one have to suffer so much really? But if at one level you are completely untouched and safe, I think if this were true, it would be a wonderful thing, what, what uh, Gaurapada is saying. Alright, let's end with this. The reason I wanted to bring it up to this is, the next verse which is coming, 32, is the climax of the chapter, which it talks about the absolute truth. He will say that there is no beginning of the universe, there is no cessation of the universe, there is no one who is, uh, who is trying to get free from the universe, no one who is practicing spiritual disciplines, nobody who has become free from the universe, nor is anybody seeking freedom from the universe, uh, nor is anybody seeking freedom, and this is the final truth. So it's like a bombshell. You would expect it the way Gaurapada has been going, but he puts it all together in the next verse, which is literally the climax of the second chapter. So, very stunning verse. I gave a whole talk about it. Do you remember? It was called? It was called? Uh, Birthless Deathless. Birthless Deathless, yes. I gave a talk on that. So, I want to devote the whole, we have to go deep into it. I want to devote the next class. Not next Wednesday, there is no class. The one after that. The whole class to that one verse. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu